hppodcraft.com. Lightning was drawn to the spot, season after season, August to November, but most heavily in September. The jagged killing bolts sought out George Cabri's orchard. Cabri, a farmer with four acres of scabrous apple trees, whose steadily diminishing production of fruit would drive him, one year later, to cut his throat with a rabbit-skinning knife and to bleed to death in the loft of his barn in Chepichet, near Providence, Rhode Island. That George Gibbery found the dismal creature at the northeast corner of his property late in September in the season of killing bolts. That is the introduction to the story On the Slab by Harlan Ellison, a writer we've never covered on this show because he's only recently passed away. Yeah, he looms large in the world of science fiction and popular literature in general. One of those guys who makes the world a little more fun because he's happy to cause trouble, make enemies, and stir the pot. And that's who we're going to be talking about here on the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey. We're here at hppodcraft.com and Patreon. Since we had Patton Oswalt on the show last week, and he was a friend of Harlan Ellison's, we had him pick three of the most Lovecraftian stories he could think of that were Harlan Ellison stories, and that is what we're going to do for the rest of the month. Three Harlan Ellison stories for the month of July. We're calling it Disgruntled Writer July. <laughs> Rolls off the tongue. Yeah, that's a pretty good... Some of the other options we had considered were July is plagiarized. <laughs> uh, Harlan Ellison hates July. Take a guess why. Or simply, I have no mouth and I must scream, why does it matter what month it is? Just like the man himself, our theme for this month is complicated. But before we get into all those complications, however, let's talk about our reader. Yeah, who was that great reader we just heard? Why, that was our man Sellers Burgener, writer, yeah. artist. Yeah! Get into it, dude. Yeah! Sellers Burgener! <laughs> He's a writer, he's an artist, he's a longtime friend of the show. Uh, some of you might remember him from our episode on Mr. Arcularis. Oh, he I do. He did a great job then, just as he's doing now. He's also a native of Atlanta, which is where I'm living right now. I'm working on a little film, which I will talk about at a later time. Let's talk about Harlan Ellison. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do that. Harlan Ellison was born in 1932 to a Jewish family in Cleveland, Ohio. He had a rough family life, and he ran away a lot when he was young. And when he ran away, he took jobs. Mm-hmm. Which is kind of interesting. I just never really thought about it. You gotta, you gotta work. Well, I, I guess so. Or maybe Brit- steal. As or- Brittany says, you gotta work, bitch. <laughs> so by eighteen, he <laughs> had a bunch of different jobs already. By the time he's eighteen, so this is the list. I got this off Wikipedia. So how true this is, who knows? But it says tuna fisherman off the coast of Galveston, crop picker in New Orleans, hired gun for a neurotic nitroglycerin truck driver in North Carolina, a short order cook, a cab driver, a lithographer, a book salesman, a floor walker at a department store, door to door brush salesman, and an actor in the Cleveland Playhouse. Hmm. Is this true? I'm not sure. I mean, I have a feeling that Harlan may have enjoyed making a few things up. Yeah. But I don't want to say, so I've gone ahead and contacted the Nitroglycerin Truck Drivers Union. Uh-huh. Uh, I asked if they could provide me with a job record for Mr. Ellison. <laughs> so on our next episode, I'll let you know what they say. I mean, unions okay, in general, they're a little bureaucratic. They can take sure. some time getting back to you. But I've always found that the Nitro Truck Drivers Union, they're very responsive and okay. a little nervous. 
So we should have an answer soon from them. So I can tell you about the veracity of those claims. Okay, great, great. He went to Ohio State University for 18 months before he got expelled. Supposedly, again, I don't know about these stories because I think most of them are from Harlan himself. Who cares if they're true? Let's just Who cares? They're great yeah. stories. Supposedly he got expelled for punching a professor that made fun of his writing. From the rest of his life after that, every time he got published, he sent that professor a copy of every book. Oh, that's so interesting, Harlan Ellison. You know, I actually like him a lot, but if we're doing Harlan Ellison, I get to be cranky too, right? I mean, oh yeah, that's why, true. Why do this month if I can't unleash some criticism? Oh yeah, he'd appreciate that, I think. Yeah, I hope so. So he first got published in newspapers and then in EC Comics in the early 1950s. He also published his own sci-fi fanzines around this time. So he's mm-hmm. total nerd. Like, super nerd. Oh, yeah. He moved to New York City in 1955 to get better writing opportunities, which seemed to pay off for him, because over the next mm-hmm. two years, he published more than 100 short stories and articles. But, however, a lot of it was, I guess, mainstream erotica? Good for him. I mean, that's how I got my start. As I've said on the show before, my first published story was in a periodical called Gent, home of the D-Cups. <laughs> and, yes, I just called Gent a periodical. Well, technically it was. It comes out over a certain period, so... It's not around anymore, is it? Are, is there any, any, print magazines? are any porn magazines around anymore? I have no idea. <laughs> so Harlan was in the Army from 1957 to 59, and his first novel, Web of the City, was published while he served. After the Army, he moved to Chicago, where he edited Rogue Magazine. He moved to California in 1962, where he started writing and selling screenplays and TV scripts. He wrote for The Flying Nun, Route 66, The Outer Limits, Star Trek, Man from Uncle, and The Alfred Hitchcock Hour, among other things. His episode of Star Trek, City on the Edge of Forever, is considered one of the best episodes of Star Trek ever written. Mm. But on that, though, he didn't really write that one exactly. He wrote the first draft, but it was heavily rewritten by Gene Kuhn and Gene Roddenberry. Hmm. And you can find the original version of it. Oh, so you've read the actual script he wrote. A lot of the key plot points are there, but there's like a lot of crazy stuff that happens. There's like a guy dealing drugs on the Enterprise. Whoa, really? Yeah, yeah. That's like how the story starts off. That's the antagonist is this drug dealer on the Enterprise. Wait, is that a fun B story for that or not? Because I, I think that's kind of awesome. It's, I mean, as a guy who's into Star Trek, yeah. as I am, mm-hmm. uh, I've, I've it's that. preposterous that there would be a drug dealer at all. Like, that is something that wouldn't exist in that universe. So Really? The fact Why not? On a starship? Because people don't need drugs, and if they need drugs, they could probably just get them. Oh, man. We got We should talk about that on a bonus episode <laughs> or something, because I, I, that's, that's crazy that you think that. Well, hey, you know what the most important thing about this period in his career was, sure. as far as I'm concerned? And I don't know if you've ever read this article. It was a, an Esquire article called Frank Sinatra Has a Cold. Have you heard about that? No. What is it? Well, it's this article by Gay Talese. It was an Esquire in 1966. Very important work, that article, in, in uh, magazine journalism. It's cited all the time as kind of changing what that format could be. I recommend listeners look it up, but the Harlan Ellison Sinatra interaction written about in there is hilarious. If I could digress for a second. Okay, sure. Uh, basically, Talese wants to interview Sinatra, but is not getting access, so he's just following him around. He goes to this Beverly Hills club with Sinatra and his entourage, and Harlan Ellison's there. Hmm. But it's the mid-60s. I mean, he's not capital Harlan Ellison yet. No, Nobody no. knows who he is. Uh, he'd written a script for this movie called The Oscar, which wasn't even out yet. I think that came out in 66. Mm-hmm. So this was probably 64 or something like that. Sinatra sees Harlan and his buddies playing pool, and he's super annoyed at how Harlan Ellison is dressed because he was wearing these game warden boots, which are like kind of hunting boots. Sinatra yells, hey, those Italian boots? Nelson says no. 
And he goes, Spanish? Nelson says, no. Are they English boots? And Nelson's like, I don't know, man. And everybody in the whole place gets quiet because he just lipped off to the biggest star in the world at uh-huh. the time, you know. And Sinatra comes over and says, you expecting a storm? Which is... I don't know if any of this is true either, but my favorite part is Harlan Ellison says, look, is there any reason why you're talking to me? Which I love. (laughs) Yeah. And Sinatra says, I don't like the way you're dressed. And Harlan says, hate to shake you up, but I dress to suit myself. Whoa. And Sinatra asks him, well, what do you do? And he says, I'm a plumber. And his friends are, no, no, no. He's a writer. Uh, He just wrote this movie, The Oscar. Oh, no. And Sinatra says... Oh, yeah, well, I've seen it, and it's a piece of crap. And Harlan's like, it's not even out yet. And Sinatra just continues to insist that he's seen it, and it's a bad movie. Right. Um, I have to look at the article again. I think Harlan eventually leaves the place. I love that he treated Sinatra just like any other jerk who suddenly butts in on your night out. Right, yeah. I really hope that story is true. And I also enjoy it because... And I don't know if it's a generational thing, but that's something my dad used to do to me that would totally drive me crazy. I'd say, like, I want to go see this movie. And he'd go, oh, I saw that on TV the other night, and it's it's not a good movie. And I'd be so mad. <laughs> it's not on you TV. You did not see Who Framed Roger Rabbit the other night because it's not even in the theater yet. And he'd go, nope, I saw it. It's not a good movie. I'm not taking you to go see it. I would just be furious. I don't know if he was just messing with me or yeah. I, I have no idea. Anyway, right. let's, let's, let's get back to Harlan's back. Oh, my gosh. So uh, in 1965, uh, Harlan was politically active. He participated in the Selma marches led by Martin Luther King Jr. Some of his more well-known works include I Have No Mouth, and I Must Scream, A Boy and His Dog, which was made into a 1975 Don Johnson movie. Actually, I love that movie. I think it's great. In the 1980s, he wrote for The Twilight Zone and Babylon 5. And I used to watch him on the Sci-Fi Channel. This is how I was introduced to him because I had no idea who he was when I was a kid. He did, there was like a sci-fi news show that they used to do. It was called Watching with Harlan Ellison. So it was kind of like a little editorial he would do and talk for maybe a minute or two. Mm-hmm. Just about whatever. I used thing. to watch it too. I totally know what you're talking about. Yeah. So I, I went on YouTube and started watching them again because I've watched them since I, was, since I was a kid. He's really brazen and he's in your face, but I really just like him. There's something yeah. kind of sincere and a little self deprecating. I don't necessarily agree with some of the things he says on there, sure. but I, I just love his enthusiasm and his commitment. Uh, we'll put a link to that in the show notes, uh, some yeah, of those, those watchings, because it really gives you a sense of who the guy was. And that's something that we never get with any of our writers on the show. No. Like a glimpse into the person that they were by actually hearing them talk. He <laughs> was married five times. Yeah, that was another theme option I thought about. Uh, July is longer than a Harlan Ellison marriage. The theme <laughs> that I was thinking about doing. Because some of those were really short, man. They were some of very short. I think short, he but... married a 19-year-old when he was like 42 or something. Oh, my God. He lasted a few weeks and that was it. What was <laughs> he thinking? He probably was drunk. Yeah. <laughs> In Vegas. That's what, I mean... <laughs> I guess that's what you do. Good so his last marriage, uh, however, though, it lasted to Susan Toth, lasted until his death 32 years later. So he was married to her for a long time. Fifth time's the charm, as the old saying goes. Good work. That's the old saying. He had a stroke in 2014 where he still had his speech, but the right side of his body was paralyzed. And then his health just slowly kind of degraded. Mm. And he died uh, just last year on June 28th at the age of 84. Yeah, I was pretty sad. I actually have read a lot of Harlan Ellison short stories when I was when I first discovered science fiction. He was in yeah. all the anthologies. So mm-hmm. I think primarily before the show that you were talking about, the reason I knew him is because he would write forwards to books a lot. 
Yeah. He was a big admirer of other writers and a big promoter of other writers. Oh, yeah. And you'd read something and there would be a comic book or a, a you know short story collection and he would have written the foreword. And he always had interesting clippy things to say. On that second watching that I watched, he goes through a whole litany of authors that he goes, if you think you know sci-fi, you should know this person. You should know this person. You just go through. I only knew about half of them. And a quarter of them we've covered on the show. Let's uh, go ahead and get into it. This story is called On the Slab. By the way, it's called On the Slab, and I think that's a pretty good title. It mm-hmm. suggested something different to me than what it was about. Yes. When when we heard that opener, that last sentence in the opening reading we heard, in the season of killing bolts. Why isn't that the, na- the name of the uh, story? <laughs> what a great sentence. In the yeah. season of killing bolts. I just It's just struck me. Wow, that's cool. The story begins at a farm in Chipachet near Providence, Rhode Island, an orchard owned by George Gibbery. It's hit by lightning often during the late summer and early autumn. Uh, this has messed up a lot of the trees and they produce malformed apples. One night, however, a crazy strike of lightning unveils a creature lying underground. Lightning was drawn to the spot, as we heard in the opening. And that really immediately pulled me in. It tells me there's <laughs> something important about this setting, about this place. When we find out about Gibri and his failing orchard, in the same sentence where we learn who he is, it says his steadily diminishing production of fruit would drive him one year later to cut his throat with a rabbit-skinning knife and to bleed to death in the loft of his barn. You know, often in this show, we get previews of the end in the beginning of the story. Yeah. But the way he does it there, it's almost a throwaway. It's not belabored. And that's what makes it more intriguing. I was just immediately, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? It says the obscenely crippled trees, scarred black as if by fire blight, had withstood one attack after another, splintering a little more each year, until one night, as the weary of the cosmic game, a monstrous forked bolt sizzling with power uncovered the creature's grave place. That's some Lovecraftian. I can see why this is put in the Lovecraftian. Yeah, genre. Yeah. It's a little more efficient than Lovecraft would have done it. But uh, <laughs> it's got that feel right away, a color out of space sort of feel. And here's what George discovers. When he went out to inspect the orchard the next morning, holding back the tears till he was well out of sight of Emma in the house, George Gibri looked down into the crater and saw it stretched out on its back. Its single green eye with the two pupils glowing terribly in the morning sunlight. Its left forearm bent up at the elbow seeming to clutch with spread fingers at the morning air. It was as if the thing had been struck by the sky's fury as it was trying to dig itself out. So this thing is huge. It's filling a 30-foot hole. The sight of this freaks George out so much that he just whimpers. And then he really never speaks again after this. The cool thing is that the tears he's holding back These tears are because of the failing orchard, not the creature. It it puts us in an emotional place with the character. Again, without belaboring it. To say that he holds back the tears until he's out of sight of his wife, we learn a lot about him just with that little phrase. He's despairing, but he's stoic. And that's important to know because when he sees this and then it freaks him out that badly, Mm -hmm. it gives us a sense of the impact of it. This is such a crazy thing for him to witness. It says George Gibri felt as if the ganglia mooring in his brain were being ripped loose. (laughs) Man, that's a great sentence. So word spreads and people come to check this thing out, but it doesn't make as much of a stir as you would think. It only gets really kind of local news coverage. Mm -hmm. And you would think, hey, finding a giant dead creature would be pretty big. Yeah. George's mind is blown by 
this experience, and he just sits and stares in his chair. Despite the fact that it only gets that local news coverage, I thought this was interesting. It says the item was small when published, but it was the beginning of October and the world was quiet. It's like this wouldn't have even registered even in that local paper if it weren't a slow news day. Yeah. And he alludes to this a few times in the piece. And I think he does it to make us wonder, what else are we missing while we're distracted by the big stories? Mm, you know, yeah. what's going on in the world that we just never see? That's and a good point. The, the reporter who writes about it is from the Providence Journal. Mm-hmm. And location is important. Why does the lightning strike in this spot and why is it so close to Providence? That comes up soon yeah. as well. It does. Some university people come to check it out, and it's a real thing. It's it's not a, a statue or a hoax or anything like that. They notice that some bits of it were eaten off after it's been unearthed by animals, they guess. But nothing like this has ever been seen on Earth. So this is huge. The university decides that it's going to offer to buy this thing from George's wife, Emma, but she already sold it to a rock concert entrepreneur from Providence. She did this because she's panicking about her husband's mental breakdown and needs money, obviously, for his care and maybe hers. Absolutely. I mean, the reasoning behind it is also dispatched in a really quick sentence where it says she was in a panic. There were doctors and hospitals in her future. Mm -hmm. And that made me very sad. Man, he's a good writer. Before the thing is purchased by the entrepreneur, immediately when, when I thought of that character, I go, oh, this is kind of the Carl Denham figure out of King Kong. You know, the guy that seized the opportunity, the P.T. Barnum. But before that happens, some students have come out to stay the night with the thing. Mm -hmm. And it says, by morning, all three of the students had fled. Again, dispatched in like a little bit of a clause. But it tells you, other than the fact that it's otherworldly, something is particularly disturbing about this creature that was Mm -hmm. found in the ground. So this promoter guy, his name's Frank Neller, he rents out the expo space at the Providence Civic Center. And it's repeated again that he's able to get the space at a ridiculously low rate because it's only the second week in October and the world was quiet. He knows how to get press, so he sends out video footage of this thing to all the major networks. It says, uh, The 30-foot humanoid, pink-skinned with staring eye malevolently directed at the cameraman's lens, was held in loving close-up on the marble slab Neller had had hewn by a local monument contractor. So that's where we get the name of the story on the slab. A bunch of scholars come to check this creature out and all said it was genuine, but they could not say where the thing had come from. It was, however, native to the planet. 30 feet in height, cyclopean. Yeah. He's grabbing some HPL vocabulary there. Yeah, but but it also has just one eye, doesn't it? (laughs) It means it's big. It doesn't (laughs) I know, no, but I'm, it is Cyclopean, but it That's also true. is a Cyclops. You know what? That is true. Well, it's got one eye, but two pupils. <laughs> two pupils in it, I yeah. don't even know how to deal with that. That's, what? That, that's, I'm, I feel ill. <laughs> My stomach hurts. <laughs> the thing is also very hard. Its flesh is as hard as a rhinoceros's horn, but also it has these scars on its chest as though centurions had jammed their pikes again and again into the flesh when this abomination had been crucified. Terrible wheels, puckered skin, still angrily crimson against the gentle pink of the otherwise unmarred body. Unmarred, that is, but for the places where the curious had used their nail files and pen knives to gouge out souvenirs. That little phrase, it just made me disappointed in people. It's very true, you know. Well, that reminds me of that that story about the angel that we covered, the guy that was in the cage, and people were plucking his feathers and hoping to get stuff out of him. Frank gives samples of its flesh to the universities to study, but he's going to make a big show of this thing. He calls it the ninth wonder of the world, and he does that specifically to kind of give a nod to King Kong, who is the eighth wonder of the world. Which I loved because Harlan knew, 
as a reader, I thought of King Kong earlier in the story, so he yep. called it out to let me know that he knows that I know, and yep. I just like that kind of thing. He brings up that it seems to be a strange place to find this thing, you know, like in New England. You know, you would think like some ancient man monster thing would be in Greece or right. or the Middle East or someplace like that, mm-hmm. but it's in it's in Providence. And then he mentions that Providence is a place that Poe visited, Lovecraft lived there, mm-hmm. and that the newspaper, the Providence Journal, was where Charles Fort had things published. He specifically calls out Lovecraft in the story. He does. He calls it an almost symphonic correctness, which is a great phrase. People come from miles around, millions of people. It's a huge attraction. Frank felt that showing the monster was important somehow in an almost spiritual kind of way. And he even asks himself, why? He found himself involved in a way he had never experienced before, not even with the most artistically rewarding groups he had booked. Showing the monstrosity was, italics, important. So the story goes into a news interview with Frank. And I thought, Chad, another opportunity for dramatization. Um, I normally like to do that, but we did that ghost story a couple weeks ago, and you were reading some lines from it, and it froze my heart. (laughs) And no microwave (laughs) in the world can undo some of the damage you did. Wow, I'm sorry. I didn't 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 mean to. I know you didn't mean to. I'm not mad at you. I just, you know, that was some (laughs) heart-freezing stuff, but I'll give it a shot. Sure, let's go. Are you the interviewer? You're brave, man. Yeah, I'll be the interviewer, so it's less, I think it'll be less scary for you. Okay. So I understand you've taken to sleeping in the rotunda where the giant is on display. Yes, that's true. Why? Why is the question I've been asking myself ever since I bought the great man and started letting people see him. Well, let's be honest about it. You didn't let people see the giant. You charged them for the privilege. You're showing an attraction after all. It's not purely a humanitarian act. That's right. That's very true. But I'll tell you, if I had the wherewithal, I'd do it free of charge. I don't, of course, so I charge what it costs me to rent space at the Civic Center. That much, no more. Come on. No, really, honest to God, I mean it. It's been 11 months, and I can't begin to tell you how many hundreds of thousands of people have come to see the great man. Maybe a million or more, I don't know. And everybody who comes goes away feeling a little better, a little more important. A religious experience? No, uh, what I'm saying is that people feel ennobled in the presence of the great man. You keep calling the giant the great man. Strange phrase... Why? Seems right, that's all. But you still haven't told me why you sleep there in the place where he's on display every day. (sighs) Well, I like the feeling. I feel as if I'm worth the trouble it took to create me. And I don't want to be away from it for too long, so I set up a bed in there. It may sound freaky to you, but... And scene. Thank you. (laughs) And that but segues into the fact that if he hadn't been sleeping there... He wouldn't have seen the Destroyer. Uh oh, is a metal band gonna break in? <laughs> they call us the Destroyer! Wow. Gonna play rock music to a giant creature! <clears throat> but before the Destroyer breaks in. <laughs> whew. Should have workshopped that one. Before the Destroyer breaks in, let's talk about the scene. Neller is in his little bed by the giant displayed creature. Right. Uh, which is really just a giant man, right? I mean, right. we keep calling it a creature, but it's not like it's got tentacles shooting out of it or something. No, no. It's, it's a it's pink-skinned like a man with one yeah. eye but two pupils in and his two eye. Two pupils. Uh, and it says he, he knew the single great eye was open, the twin pupils staring straight ahead. They had become companions, the man and the giant. This is such a meaningful connection for him. Right. with this exhibit. But as he lies there, he contemplates the creature, and it says, wherever and however this astounding being had lived, in whatever way he had passed through his days and nights, 
he had suffered something more terrible than anyone merely human could conceive. What had done such awesome damage to his flesh, and how had he regenerated, even as imperfectly as this? These are the things that Neller is thinking. And then, boom, a giant bird, a vulture, comes in through the skylights like a hurricane. It breaks through, showering the area with stalactites of glass, almost hitting Frank. And then it says something enormous was moving beyond the foot of the bed. So Frank looks up, he sees this nightmare. He identifies it as a bird, and we know it's monstrous, but before he characterizes it too much, he quickly knocks out this story about a robin that he encountered as a child. Mm -hmm. There's this sadness to the way he tells it. I don't know if you felt that in the at that moment in the story. Where, where I grew up, I had a pic, big picture window that faced out to a forested area. Yeah. There was a balcony, and sometimes a bird would come in and hit it and then land on the balcony, and I'd have to see it die. So this really... <laughs> stuck with me you know sure it says the robin that had struck and fallen and lain there till he came out of the house and picked it up its blood had been watery and he could feel its heart beating against his palm mm. tiny it had died in fear and this actually doesn't have much to do with this story i mean we'll talk about it at the end because i'm not entirely sure what the story's about yeah me neither that's an entire horror story in and of itself holding the creature while he feels it die in fear because you know that the animal doesn't understand what just happened right there was something about that that was that was the scariest part of the story to me hmm. well i don't know if this is meant to be a horror story but it just struck something oh man it just it got to me so when the destroyer comes through he's saying it's a bird but it's neither tiny nor fearful like no other bird he had ever seen like no other bird that had ever been seen like no other bird that had ever existed Sinbad had known such a bird, perhaps, but no other human eyes had ever beheld such a destroyer. It was gigantic. Frank Neller could not estimate its size because it was almost as tall as the great man, and when it made the hideous watery cawing sound and puffed out its bellows chest and jerked its wings into a billowing canopy, the pin feathers scraped the walls of the rotunda on either side. The walls were 75 feet apart. The vulture gave a hellish scream and sank its scimitar talons in the petrified flesh of the great man, its vicious beak in the chest, and the puckered area of scars that had glowed softly in the shadows. So it rips away the giant's flesh. It took me a while, but then I got it. I figured out what was going on here. Yeah, the jump on me there, because even though I was a huge mythology nerd as a kid, I still had no idea what was going on. Oh, really? Yeah, I didn't know. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, so the giant groans and its eye blinks. Frank runs and he gets a fire extinguisher and he shoots the bird in the face and it drives it away. Which was kind of funny to me because I think Harlan Elson at the point was thinking, well, how is the guy going to fight the thing? Like, what's in the environment? Because he going to throw a chair at it? Oh, wait, there's a fire extinguisher everywhere. So that'll be the <laughs> weapon that he uses. I don't know. I just felt like that. But it works. The bird's like, sure. squawk, squawk, ouch, I'm getting out of here. Don't like fire extinguishers. You know, chemicals in your eyes and in your mouth, I, I, I wouldn't like feel it. good. No. So the bird's like, I don't want that. I'm out of here. <laughs> so the giant is in terrible pain and Frank asks it what he can do for it. And the giant telepathically answers to him. It says, nothing. It will come again. Which is, that's when I finally got it. Oh, this is Prometheus. Yeah. Prometheus is the titan. He defied the gods, gave us fire, actually created man, mm -hmm. and then said, I'm going to give you fire so that you're able to survive. And was punished for that, right? Because they put him on a rock. That's right. In a pit. And 
and an eagle comes down every day and tears his liver out and yep. then he regrows the liver and then the eagle comes back and that's his punishment who yep. thought that up by the way some jerks <laughs> so Frank says I, I know your name <laughs> hundreds of years of literature people have been asking this question and finally we have an answer there you go some jerks so Frank says I know your name and it's, he says your tears mingled with the earth to create us you gave us fire and the giant says yes and wisdom and Franks knows the giant, who we can assume is Prometheus, has suffered for what he did. And Frank wants to know, is he what we were before we became what we are now? But before he can answer, the bird returns and it comes crashing in. And Prometheus says, no, I am what you would have become. And the bird comes in with such force that it slams into Frank and knocks him unconscious. That's very Lovecraftian. Uh, yeah, he faints. Except he doesn't faint. He's knocked unconscious, but, but still. But it's still the faint moment. Yes. When Frank Neller regained consciousness, hours later, there on the floor where the scissoring pain of his broken ribs had dropped him, he heard those last words reverberating in his mind and heard them endlessly all the rest of his days. No, I am what you would have become if you had been worthy and the silence was deeper that night across the face of the world, from pole to pole, deeper than it had been before in the life of the creatures that called themselves human, but not as deep as it would soon become. That's the end of the story. Yeah. I'm perplexed by what it means. Me too. I like so much about it, mm -hmm. but at the end, I didn't really understand this. How would we have become... Titans. What is it that we didn't do right? Well, is it that we would have become Titans if we were worthy? Or is he saying you would have suffered for eternity if you were worthy? Man, I'm so confused by it. At first <laughs> when I read it, I thought he was saying you would have turned into giant people. Titans. Giant pink, uh, cool looking dudes, but you did something wrong. And so now you're little weirdos. I, it has more to do with the sacrifice, right? Like he is willing to go through this. Yeah. Is it just saying that since he, he was worthy because he's willing to do this for his creation, which is man? Which is like Christ-like, right? I guess so, yeah. I'm taking this punishment for you. So is that is that what he's saying? Is like you're I not... highly doubt that he's putting some kind of Christian overlay here, though. Not that that notion is inherently Christian. No. Sacrifice is a very noble thing. Well, I mean, that's bro, the... That's Legend life. of Prometheus uh, predates Christ. Uh, absolutely. So, you know. so that's, uh, I, yeah, yeah, exactly. So I'm not saying that, but I, so, I really was kind of mystified by the end of this, to be yeah. honest. Yeah. Is it the sacrifice that made him worthy, or is it the act of creation that made him worthy? Is it that humans don't sacrifice, so they are unworthy? I can see why people wanted to, us to read this, because it has these color out of space elements. It references uh, Providence and Lovecraft and mm -hmm. Poe. But then when we got when I got down to that last paragraph, I thought this has nothing to do with the stuff we typically no, do. No, this isn't weird fiction. No, this is a little more... I don't get it. <laughs> That's I'm all sorry. Right. I'm sure uh, our listeners out there, somebody oh, probably I'm sure gets it. They were going to go, you idiots, it's clearly about this. Well, sometimes we're idiots, man. We're just a couple of guys who read some stuff. <laughs> That's all we are. We reach out to our listeners. Please make comments on our website, on our Patreon page. Let us know what you think that this story means. And how Harlan Ellison might have even written somewhere what the story means. 
he, he's not shy about writing about his own stories. So, in fact, the next story that we're going to cover, I have an introduction that he wrote to his own story. What's that story called? That story is called From A to Z, The Chocolate Alphabet. Well, we'll get a little of the author's insight into that one. I yes. got to say, this podcast is a little find your fate. We, I, <laughs> I tried to figure out this thing at the end and I couldn't do it. That doesn't mean I didn't enjoy it. And I actually no. sometimes like to read a story that is going to make me think for a few days. Of course. But man, I'd love some listener input on this one for sure. Yeah. Being challenged by a story is a good thing. Absolutely. I'd like to thank our reader, Sellers Bergener. What a great guy. I'm so glad that he showed up again to do this show for us, and uh, I hope we can have him on again in the future. And I also want to thank our patrons. I want to thank Ethan Whitlow. I'd like to thank Raul Coons. Jonathan Rury. You're the best. I'd like to thank Damon Clark. Mike Donegan. Thanks for being a patron. I'd like to thank Andrew Obadier. Jay Robles. You're amazing. Chris Paolo. You're great, too. (laughs) I'd like to thank Elias Stollard Oliveira. And I'd like to thank Paul Meager. You guys are the best. Thanks so much for making it possible for us to do the show. That's all we've got this week. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. I'm Chris Lackey, and you've been listening to the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com. hppodcraft.com. Ah!